I realized um, as we were finishing up the first service that, uh, that I had made a mistake. I was watching. There's a clock up here for those of us who are you know, preachers because we could talk all day. And it shows you when you should be finished. And a while ago, uh, Grace Chapel's second service started at 1115. And I haven't spoken here in a while, so I have like this memory of like when I'm supposed to be finished. And I checked the time a couple of times, and so I, I'm teaching and teaching. And about three fourths of the way through the message first service, I look and think, I don't have enough content. I can't make it till eleven. Like I'm gonna stretch this. So I add a story while I'm teaching, and then I hear everyone outside. And I think, no, no, no. Second service starts at eleven. Um, so I added a nice fifteen minutes to the first service. Those poor people had to listen. 15 minutes extra because I thought the service times were off. So my uh, my apologies for us starting a little bit late because I looked at the clock. So um, I have it down correctly. This service ends at 2. So um, I'm super excited about that. Uh, And it's going to be a fun morning. Uh, I am honored to be able to share with you this morning as part of this stand series where uh, as a church this discussion hopefully a discussion has been happening around what we should be standing for and how we should be standing for these things over the past several weeks there's been great dialogue about suffering and about how we stand in suffering and what we should be standing for for and how to begin standing with God as the center of our life. And this morning we want to talk about one of the ways and the things that is continually surrounded um, a Christian faith, but not often engaged with as much as it should be. I mentioned earlier this morning that this is not the message that gets a lot of laughs. Um, because it's the one that we go, oh man, he's talking about that, I'm terrible at that, this is going to be awful. Um, you're right, it is. It's going to be painful internally for some of us, because we're going to go, oh, I don't, like, it, it's something I know I need to work on. But I just want to preface this morning by saying that the content that we share together is not content for judgment today. Jesus is not here to judge his church today. He's not here to judge you individually today. He's not here to draw out all of the mess that you are and that I am. He's here with us this morning to remind us that he has a story that's better than anything we could write without him. It's more redeeming. It's more engaging. It's better than any story we could make up and tell anyone else. It's a story that we get to live that will not only transform our own life, but that it changes the people and the stories that are around us. And that it's not on our shoulders to bear the burden of our own story. He's taken that himself, and he's going to share with us this morning the ways in which he's inviting us into the best story that we could ever share. But in doing that, we might feel a little guilty today. We might feel a little uncomfortable today. We might feel like we're not doing enough today. And so I want to preface where we're going with who He is. He is the creator of the world. He spoke this beauty into existence. 
He drew us into a community with Him and invited us to be one with Him as Father, Son, and Spirit. He walked to a cross beaten on our behalf. He gave Himself up so that we could be made full. He spoke His Spirit into us when we claimed Him as our Lord and our Savior. And He promises to be with us until the end of the age. It is that Jesus that gives us this word today, not to burden us, but to invite us to claim His word as truth and to stand in His Word as authority in our lives so that we can have the best story we could ever imagine. As we start, I'm going to ask that you join me in a little exercise to give us that depth of reliance on Jesus. So if you would, just take the palms of your hands and just turn them up in your lap for just a moment. Often when we turn our hands up, it's like we're going to get a gift. It's a, it's a posture of surrender and receiving at the same time. I'm going to read a passage of Scripture, and I invite you just to close your eyes if the atmosphere of the room would be distracting to you. And just to let these words sit in your hands as a gift that Jesus wants to give to us today. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, I pray that this, you, the Word, the Word that has existed from before anything else existed, would be the gift that you give us today. That your Word would meet us where we are and that your word would be spoken among the nations as light into darkness. And I claim in these moments that you are the light and the darkness has never overcome you. Put that truth deeply in us this morning to give us peace and pause to rely on you, no matter our circumstances, our nature, our frustration, or our fear. Be the only voice that's heard here today. It's through you that we speak. Amen. Jesus is... uh, seen in Matthew chapter 17 in this story that has often influenced me on on so many different ways because it's so 
deeply moving, but yet so impossible. He's seen going up a mountain with a couple of his disciples. Jesus did this all the time. It wasn't anything new for him to be trekking up some hill or mountain to spend time alone with his father. Sometimes he went into these solitary places because there were men who were ready to kill him and stone him. And it wasn't the time for him to make the journey to the cross. And so he would go into these desolate places and hide out as his spirit was refueled by his father because there were plans and plots to kill him for what he had been saying and teaching. There were other times where we see him in a garden to get away from the crowds that just wanted more healing, more moments with him, and they were beginning to create this cultural icon of Jesus instead of this God that they wanted to believe in and see their redemption come from. They were making him into a a first century celebrity, and they were just lining up people who needed healing just to see the miraculous work so that they could record them and begin to worship the celebrity status of Jesus, and he would slip away from the crowds in moments because he He didn't want to be an idol. He didn't want to be an icon. He wanted to be a savior. And he would slip away in those moments. Then there were other times where you find Jesus just slipping away because of what was coming next. And he wanted to spend time as Trinity with Father and Spirit as they communed together. And he would pray and talk with God. And they would converse with each other. And it's in this moment where he's going to converse with his father in anticipation of the Passover coming. Of the time where he was going to go to the cross and become the sacrifice for the sin of the world. He goes up this mountain and he invites a couple of his followers to come with him. And as they ascend the mountain, it says that in in that moment this transfiguration happens. Jesus doesn't look like human Jesus anymore to the disciples. It says that he was caught up with his full glory. He looks like the full glory of God that is in heaven in that moment. I'm not sure if he began just to glow or his whole person changed and he looked different. But he begins to have the fullness of the being of God. And he's joined by Moses and Elijah. And in that moment, the disciples of Jesus have to lose their mind. It actually says that they begin screaming out in fear while they're on top of this mountain. Because they're looking and seeing Moses, the patriarch, the man, the guy who led Israel out of Egypt, the one who freed slaves, the one who was in a basket and delivered, and he saw a burning bush, and he threw his staff down, and it became a a serpent, and he picked it back up, and it becomes a staff again. The one who brought in plagues, who fought Pharaoh, who got us into the wilderness, who climbed the mountain, who spoke with God, who wrote the law. There he is standing in front of these disciples who would have grown up only hearing about Moses. He was LeBron. I mean, yeah. Um, right? LeBron, no, he's not. Some Cleveland fans over there. That's for you, Kyle. Um, and he was everyone that was from Israel knew of Moses, and they were in awe of this man. And there he is, standing in front of them. They knew he had died, but here he is. 
standing next to full-blown God, Jesus. And then there's Elijah, the prophet who didn't die. The prophet who was doing so much for God and speaking on his behalf and chasing after him that he actually outran a chariot one day. He called fire down from heaven on a day. He was the one who listened to the whisper of God. And at the end of his life on earth, a chariot of fire comes from heaven and picks him up and takes him home. That's a cool way to go to prom, right? His chariot of fire just comes down and takes me out. Sweet. And he's standing next to Jesus. And the disciples in that moment, they see the two pillars of their faith. The man who represents the law of God. The salvation of people from slavery. And the prophet who represented the interweaving of God speaking to his people. And navigating the nation of Israel in their relationship with him. The two pillars are standing and Jesus is outglowing both of them. And the disciples look and they're like, hey, you know what would be a good idea? Peter actually brings up, Peter's full of great ideas all the time. He brings up, the, he's like, you know what we should do? We should make three tents for you up here. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for Jesus. And we should hang out with the three of you because you are the three pillars of our faith. We should follow you is really what he's saying. We should dwell with you. We should make a tent of meeting. People should come up here and worship you. Even though he only says one sentence of saying, we should make tents for each of you. What he's saying, what a Jew would understand is he's saying is, we should create three places of worship and we should usher in the entire nation of Israel to come up here and worship all three of you. And in that moment, heaven is kind of peeled back God drops a nice little bright cloud down from heaven onto the sky and it glows and he speaks. Jesus doesn't even have to speak for himself in the moment. God the Father says, this is my son. He said that before. Jesus' baptism, he said the same thing. This is my son in whom I am pleased. Then he says something massively important. Listen to him. And the game changed in that moment. In that specific transfiguration moment, what God the Father is saying is, this is me. Moses, yeah, good guy, wrote the law, well done, cool bro. Elijah, prophet, well done, navigated the nation of Israel and began to speak on how God interacts with his people. Didn't die, gave you a chariot, cool bro, this is me. He's going to save the world. This is the word that you listen to. Listen to him. Jesus would later say, no scripture can be broken, but it must be fulfilled. And in the transfiguration of Jesus on top of this mountain, what he is saying to the world is, I have fulfilled the law. I have fulfilled the prophets. Now I'm going to breathe life through my word. This is me. Listen to me. The reason that the Bible should have authority in our lives is the combination of these two scriptures that I've shared with you. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. The Word is God. 
The word logos there means this ever eternal word that is God. And it can also be interpreted as the written word of God is God. What he's saying is, is John writes his first chapter, is that the beginning, Jesus was there. He's the word from the very beginning. It's his word. And at the transfiguration, what God the Father is saying, I was the law, I spoke that, that's me. I was the prophets, I spoke that, that's me. I am Jesus, I speak this. This is me. And this one fulfilled those two. So whatever you do in the word, it must be in tune with the word of Jesus. It must reflect the person the teaching, the revelation that Jesus has shared. If we share a word that does not come from Jesus, but we share it on behalf of Jesus, we're in trouble. If we interpret the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is not interpreted as a word that is to prophesy, proclaim, and affirm the salvation through Jesus, we're getting it wrong. We can talk about the 600 rules of the covenant of the Old Testament as much as we want. But if we want to talk about them alone without how they illustrate the impossibility of perfection outside of the grace that Jesus offers through his blood and salvation, we're getting it wrong. We can keep 600 rules as much as we want to. But unless we find the grace of Jesus, we will not find the kingdom of heaven. Unless we understand the prophecy of the Old Testament as illustrating over 350 different things the Messiah must do to be the Messiah, then we're getting it wrong. We often read the Old Testament and we pick and choose rules from it that we want our kids to obey, that we want our families to live under, that we believe culture should own. But we get it wrong when we say live under this Old Testament rule If the Old Testament rule does not lead into a New Testament covenant. Jesus doesn't say, I broke all the Old Testament. He says, I fulfilled it. It's full. Now listen to me. Listen to what I say. Listen to what I teach. Listen to who I am. Our problem is that we have an issue with listening. We only want to listen when we're about to die. We only listen when we're desperate. In 2 Timothy, Paul actually calls the word of God the breath of God. He says you're going to breathe this life into us. Most of the time we don't want anything breathing into us unless we need resuscitated. We want to breathe on our own. We often want to live our own lives. We want to make our own decisions. We want to be able to make our own choices. And we want to be able to drive our life forward. And then we want God to say it's good and approve it because we don't want to make him mad. We don't want to live outside of his will. And so we breathe on our own. And then we look at God often and we say, do you like how I'm breathing? you like my breath? It's like, man, way too much coffee, bro. Tic-tac. Until something happens. Until 21 of our loved ones are seen on a video. Losing their life. 
because they believe in our Jesus. Then we want to know what Jesus says about this. Then we want to know what he wants to do about this. Then we want to know what he believes about this injustice and this punishment. Why? Because I can't breathe. I don't know if you saw that video that was shown earlier about ISIS or ISIL or whatever we want to call them. Taking the lives of 21 more believers. I won't just say 21 believers because this is more. This isn't the first. It won't be the last. But if you saw that video, you're moved almost to desperation of saying, what do we do about this? I was actually asked that question this week that someone was watching it with me and they looked at it and they were like, so what do you believe that we should do about this? What he was really asking me is, can we go kill them? It's really what he was asking. Will Jesus please tell us it's okay to go put a bullet in their head? Because that's what I want to do right now. Because that's not fair. Because that's not okay. Because that shouldn't happen. They shouldn't have died that way. Somebody should do something. We're all over our president about it. We're all over other nations about it. Who's going to do something about this is what we want to know. Because internally, we can't breathe. Because this shouldn't happen. When we see human trafficking, when we see desperation around us, when someone gets sick with cancer, we look and we go, I can't breathe. This shouldn't happen. Okay, God, what do you say about this? And in those moments, we want God to breathe life into things that we're seeing as dead. But that's not the purpose of this. The purpose of salvation is not just to bring us back from death. To breathe us into life. When was the last time you read your Bible? Oh boy. See, this is the not fun part. Where is it? You're like, I got it right here. It's an app. Not a nap, an app. It's right next to Facebook. I go on Facebook, I see what everybody's doing, I open my Bible, and I judge them. I mean, no, that's not. Yeah, that's us. Um, after I check Facebook and Twitter, for those of you super cool people in the room, and Instagram, because your kids are on there, and Snapchat, and ESPN, and Pinterest, whatever that is, and YouTube videos, and my calendar, and my emails, Oh, I've done one better, Chris. I don't, it's not an app. It's actually, I signed up for an email. I don't even have to open the app. Just every morning, someone, some Bible guru sends me a verse that tells me exactly what God's saying to me today. And I delete it right before I delete the email from my boss telling me what to do today. We often think, we're in this word, and we're letting it give us life. But what we've really done is just put a safety net around ourselves for just in case. Well, just in case I need the Bible, I get a verse every day. Just in case I need it, I can open my app anytime that I, have, that I need to. Just in case something bad goes wrong, I have it. Instead of it being the breath of God that we can't live without every day. Quick side note, that could sound a lot like judgment. I don't mean it that way. Here's how I mean it. We wake up every day 
and the urgency of all the other stuff that we're not sure how the Bible relates overwhelms us. And we're not sure where its place is. Because we're not sure that it gives us life. We just know we're supposed to follow it. We're supposed to do what it says. And a lot of times we open it and it's super confusing. We have no idea why so-and-so begat so-and-so. We don't even know what begat means. But we read in Matthew and Luke and we're like, who begat who? What's a begat? And we start to read it and it's confusing and so we set it to the side because life is confusing enough. So many of us last week had to make a decision on what we believed about Fifty Shades of something. Because this blockbuster movie was coming out and it was going to be about some very, very, very dark things. We had to decide, are we going to go see the movie? Are all my friends going to go see the movie? What's everybody going to talk about at work about the movie? Did I read the book? Did I not read the book? Is this a guilty pleasure? Does Jesus hate this? What's he think about it? We had to make decisions about what do we believe? What are we going to tell people on behalf of Jesus about these murderers around the world, people that are destroying life? We've had recently to make decisions. What do you believe about Ferguson? What do you believe about New York City? What do you believe about police? What do you believe about racial tension? What do you believe about Saturday Night Live 40th anniversary? What do you believe about snow days? We all had to make that decision this week. We loved them on Monday, and on Friday they were a tool of Satan. (laughs) I know, mom and dad are like, yes, exactly. Kids are like, what? What school? Uh, I destroyed Mario Kart this week. We have a lot of decisions that we have to make. How are we putting tires on the car? Who's paying the bill this week? What house do we want to live in? Where are our kids going to college? Where am I going to college? Can I quit college? Am I going to work this job next week? Did I don't like this job anymore. Do I want to do something different? Am I doing the best that I can? Am I the best husband? Am I the best wife? Am I the best child? You guys don't even ask that. Kids don't ask whether or not they're the best child. They're just like, you're a crappy parent. Um, it's on us. We ask a lot of questions because life has a lot of decisions. There are a lot of things that need to be made. And what Jesus says in this transfiguration moment, what he's saying to us is, guess what? I'm not the law anymore. Not just that. I'm not going to tell you what I can do when I do show up. I'm here. I am your breath. Let me breathe life into every difficult decision that you have in front of you, into every great decision that you have in front of you. Just give me the opportunity to say something because I don't want to give you CPR when you're almost dead. I want to run next to you and show you the pace of life that will sustain you. And we can run with him. Why should we believe the Bible? Because we believe in Jesus. And he says it's his breath. I could go through the rest of these few minutes that we have left and walk you through historically, factually, inerrantly, why these 66 books make sense in a world that would make zero sense, that no one else in the world could write a book over this extended period of time with this many different authors in this many different cultures and everything line up to both prophesy and fulfill everything that it said about its central figure, Jesus, the Savior of the world. I could walk you through all of that. That doesn't make you wake up and read the Bible tomorrow. doesn't. It makes you go to lunch and tell people why they're going to hell. Because we know this is true and we know this is the word. And if you don't believe the word, then that's where you're going. It can become very legalistic approach as to why people would read this. 
Here's why we read the Bible. Because we can't figure it out on our own. Because the story's too big for us. Because we need hope. Because we need compassion. Because we need redemption. Because we need someone to fix it and then invite us into the story with them. Because we need to know that tomorrow is a new day and we get to start fresh. Because we need to know that there's enough grace for our mistakes. Because we need to know that there is an eternal judge that's greater than a bunch of mercenaries halfway around the world. Because there's a God bigger than cancer. Because there's a Savior who understands train wrecks and how to put them back together. There's no religion in the world. There's no story. There's no history book. There's no book of rules that has all of that encompassing like this word. I think, I think Paul says it really well in 2 Timothy. He says in chapter 3, verse 16, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. First thing I want you to grab from this conversation that Paul is having with Timothy is just that. It's a man having a conversation with another man who he views as his son. He writes this letter and says, Timothy, my beloved son. He takes him in as like a, he's a father figure to this young guy and Paul actually says before these verses, I've run the race, I've fought the fight. He's got this mentality that I'm going to write my last words to my boy before Rome does whatever Rome wants to do to me. He hasn't had this moment where God came into his little house prison and said, Now, Paul, what I want you to know is that in 2015, the words that you are about to put on that piece of paper will be on apps around the world. There will be over a million copies of this book that you will be in, so please do it right. He doesn't have that conversation. Paul just says, in tune with the Spirit, God himself has said, Write your boy a letter. Tell him what he needs to know to do this. Paul's not asking questions. Going, so how many people are going to read this? Is this just Timothy or thousands of people? How many languages do we need to translate this into? Paul's just going, yes, sir. And he starts to write his boy this note. Paul has an understanding, though, that God has a tendency to use his followers to speak his word and God breathes not onto the words that Paul is writing. He breathes out the words through Paul who is living in tune with him. You see the difference? You see in in church history, we've often said God speaks two ways, either through divine revelation where God speaks directly. You hear the voice of God, peels back heaven, puts a cloud there and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am pleased. Believe in him. And you hear the voice, you see it and you go, oh, God, divinely revealing himself to me. 
I get it. I'm going to do what you say. And then we also had this terminology that we often use called divine inspiration, where we believe that God was hovering over these writers as they spoke, and he was inspiring their words. The problem with divine inspiration is it's not in the Bible. It's not. It's an answer to people who would say, how could imperfect people be writers on behalf of God if his word is perfect? And our answer over time was, well, God inspired them. So that way his word could be perfect. I would say, no, that's cheapening what God did here. God did not inspire Paul. God breathed through Paul. He didn't look at what Paul was writing and say, I am so proud of you. You have done such a great job understanding my kingdom. God said, this is my spirit. I will dwell inside of you and he will counsel you and he will guide you and he will navigate you to all righteousness and truth. Here you go, Paul. Let me speak. And Paul began to write in tune with the spirit to what he wanted his son to hear. So parents, you can relate to this, that intimacy that you would have if you began to write those words that you wanted your little kid to know. I spent a few moments the other day just grabbing a, a little note and writing to each one of my daughters and my wife, just, just my thoughts about them. And I can say it a lot, and it means something, but when I start to write it, I'm going, this is something that you can come back to over and over in your life. What do I want you to never forget? What do I want to make sure that you claim? What do I want to make sure that overwhelms you? And I believe that that's where Paul is writing in this moment of saying, Timothy, I love you, boy. If I had a son, you would have been it. I didn't have my own kids, so I, I have you, Timothy, and I'm so proud of the church that you're building, the kingdom that you're leading, but I need you to know this. And he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Don't forget it, son. Don't forget it, kid. Don't forget it, daughter. I am breathing all scripture so that you can live in tune with it. And then he tells him it's good for teaching. And I take a deep breath and go, thank goodness, because I'm an idiot. I don't know if you've ever thought that about yourself. If you haven't, you should. Because there's so many moments in our lives where we just don't get it, and we need taught. My family just moved to a house in Mason. We were living up north And the house that we sold was only eight years old. We were the first people that got to live in that house. So everything was new when we walked in. Had that nice new house smell. If there was a stain on the carpet, it was one of my daughter's fault, right? Or one of the college students that came over. It was probably their fault, not even my kids. And so it was our house. Well, we moved. And when we moved into the house, the new house that we moved into wasn't new at all. It was 30 years old. And there's kind of these rules in life where my eight-year-old daughter, her body is a whole lot better shape health-wise than my 30-plus-year-old one. Like, life just kind of wears on you, right? Well, it's the same with houses. 30-year-old house, it's a little bit more worn than the eight-year-old house. So we move in and start noticing that there are these small things that we just have to start working on. And I had tools, right, because I'm in ministry, so I'm a guy. People bought me tools, and they're like, you're a man, you have to have tools, I have a master's degree in theology. I don't know what's in that bucket. Um, It's cool, but I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Jesus was a carpenter, maybe. Um, And I I love other things. I'm not the DIY 
carpentry guy all the time. My dad was into carpentry. I just had other stuff like football and soccer to do all the time. So it just wasn't my thing. So I get into this house and go, huh, I'm going to finally get to use these tools. Who do I know? Um, Because I want to start calling people. But I start doing some things on my on my own because I think that's what a man does. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what, you know, this man code says. You should be able to do all these things. So I start working on some of the things, and I'm impressed with myself. I'm like, huh, you're not terrible. And then my daughters are taking a bath one day, and I walk into the kitchen. Bathtub is right above the kitchen sink. Drip, 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 drip. I'm like, huh, we have a shower in the kitchen. I don't think that's supposed to happen. So I go running up the stairs. I'm like, turn the water off. And they all look at me like like something just crazy happened in the house. They're like, what? I'm like, we have a leak in the kitchen. It's Christmas week. And this bathtub is leaking. And I don't know how to fix it. And so I call someone and say, hey, can you come over? They can't come over. They don't have margin. But in that moment, I start getting opinions. Have you ever had a problem when people start giving you opinions? Opinion one. No matter what the problem is, it's probably in the pipes underneath the tub, so you should just go ahead and start ripping the ceiling out of your kitchen. Just go ahead. Just start ripping it out. No matter what, that's going to happen. Oh, my heart. I'm like, I just bought a house. I don't want to rip the kitchen ceiling out. Are you sure? Yeah. Option two, other friend comes in and says, no. Are you sure it's in the drain? No. I'm sure it's not Greek or Hebrew. That's all I know. And he's like, well, you know, it's probably in the wall. It's probably not even in the drain. You should just go ahead, if you want to get ahead of it, before the plumber comes out to look at it, you're going to have to rip all that stuff out. So just go ahead and rip, it, rip the tile out and rip the drywall out so that they can see the pipes. You sure? Yeah, man. That's what I would do. Okay. Um, Google, <laughs> what do you think? Because so far I haven't liked either option. My bank account really hasn't liked either option. So I'm like, okay, rip the ceiling out, rip the wall out. What? Okay. So I Google it, and I see, like, if you've ever Googled home improvement things, like, every horror story ever is the top, like, 50 hits, because everybody wants to see things go wrong. And so I look at it, and I'm like, huh, oh, no, like, we should just blow the house up, start over. It's not worth it. Just put a for sale sign out there, keep that bathtub from running water, just sell the thing, because this thing is done. We're out, like, everything. What did we, why did we move here? Like, I'm beginning to question the meaning of life. And then I have this aha moment. My boss at back-to-back ministries is a contractor. He's always done homework. He's always been able to build most of the structures around the world. So I'm like, ah, I'm going to call John. He might know. So I call John and say, hey, um, what are you doing this afternoon? You want to come look at my bathtub? He's like, what? You're weird. That's beside the point. Um, yeah, I have a leak. And he's like, oh, is it in the drain? Yeah. Um, is it just leaking drops? Yeah. It's not just like full on running? No. It's like I went to the doctor's office all of a sudden. He's like asking, asking all my symptoms and he knows them all. He's like, here's what you do. You go to Lowe's, you go get this tool. I want you to turn the drain. And if the drain tightens down, you're good. I'm like, yeah, but I read about all of this, like plumber's putty and all this other stuff. He's like, just listen and do what I say. Yes, sir. Just turn the thing, turn the water on. And if you don't have a leak, just say thank you. Okay. And so I go in, get the tool, go to Lowe's, act like I know what I'm doing, grab the tool. Some of you guys that are in this business, you think this is really funny. And ha-ha, give me your phone so I can call you next time. And, uh, and so I go in, I grab the tool, I go up to the, 
the bathroom. I turn it, and it goes like two and a half like times around. I'm like, I didn't know it wasn't supposed to be that loose. And so I turn it around, and I get on the phone with him. I'm like, man, I turned it. And he's like, turn the water on. Most of the time when houses are moved out of, and if the, no one had been using that bathtub, things can just get loose. I just see it all the time. It happens. People spend a whole bunch of money ripping walls out and ripping floors out when all they really needed to do was tighten the drain up just a little bit. I'm like, really? And so I turn the water on, go down, anoint the kitchen, pray over the ceiling, and you know, ask God to bless it, and no water. Nothing. I'm like, it worked. He's like, yeah, of course it worked. Like, I know what I'm doing. He knows what he's doing. Why do we keep asking for opinions? Why do we keep ripping the floor out of our faith over and over? Because someone questioned whether or not God was real. Why do we keep ripping the walls out of our relationship with Jesus? Because we woke up and that morning we just weren't a good husband. We just weren't a good wife. We just made a mistake as a kid. We just weren't a good parent. And we ripped the walls out and we're like, this stuff must not be real. I just need to shred the whole thing and tear the thing down. How about we ask the one who's been there? Let's let him teach us. Let's let him train us. Because he knows the difference between a drain that just needs tweaked a little bit. And a pipe that needs replaced. And a wall that needs torn down. See, the church globally isn't doing as much stuff that's in here. Because we're busy retiling spiritual walls that we didn't need to break down in the first place. We're trying to prove to people in culture that they shouldn't go see a movie. About sexual abuse called Fifty Shades of Grey. If they're going to see it, if you're going to see it, it has nothing to do with the review or what's in the movie. It has everything to do with what you believe about Jesus, what you believe about marriage, what you believe about love, what you believe about intimacy, what you believe about satisfaction, what you believe about media. It has everything to do with those things and nothing to do with whether or not some Christian person throws 18 scriptures as to why this is not God's will on Facebook to decide whether or not you see the movie. It doesn't matter. What matters is whether or not you have an intimate relationship with Jesus who breathes life into us through his word and he does the teaching, he does the rebuking, he does the correcting, he does the training. What matters is whether or not the world knows Jesus. And the world can't know Jesus if its followers are ripping the walls down of faith around themselves because we're not even sure that we believe this enough to read it on a regular basis. Our invitation is not to rebuke because Paul tells Timothy to rebuke and correct. Our invitation is not to rebuke people. Jesus rebukes in a couple of scenarios in Scripture, he rebukes Satan, Matthew 4. He rebukes religious leaders who are using his breath, his word, to oppress and destroy. He rebukes his disciples, 
when they get it wrong. And when they choose to use his word to oppress and destroy, read Luke 9 and 10. Where James and John decide to call down fire from heaven to smote out a city just because they wouldn't let Jesus eat there. Jesus rebukes them and says, no, we're not calling fire down from heaven to destroy them. Let's move on. See, oftentimes we read scripture like this and we say, oh, Paul's telling Timothy, our job with scripture is to take his breath and rebuke each other. Tell each other how wrong we are. It's not the right context. Rebuke the lie that people are believing by rebuking Satan. By rebuking the lies that you believe. Begin to breathe the word of God. And when the word doesn't match what you've been taught, seek the truth of how Jesus says it and how he lives it before you respond and condemn someone else. But most of all, most of all, breathe it in. Because this writes the story for every good work that has ever been done on behalf of the kingdom of God. Through his word. So here's your challenge this week. Find your Bible and read it. Not study. Not jump into a women's Bible study or a men's Bible study. That's different. Just open it. Read it. And let Jesus breathe life into you. Dear Jesus, I pray that you would give us margin to do this. And that your word would be a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path, that it would overcome our darkness and the darkness of the world. And I pray that right now, your word is ministering to those in oppression, in bondage, in brokenness, in places that we cannot even reach. Holy Spirit, fill us with your wisdom with your righteousness, with your truth. Breathe through us. It's through you that we pray. Amen. Don't forget next week, if you are normally an early service person, but you just came because it snowed, 9.30, not 9.45 next Sunday morning. Have a great week.